1: This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Goldberg. Today we're going to be talking about the riots that ensued this week on Capitol Hill. I have a co-host today, a new co-host, Brock Turner. Brock is the WFIU reporter who has been covering a lot of this and getting a lot of local reactions. So we're going to hear, hear from Brock, and he's also going to be asking questions as well. And he'll be asking questions, and I will, of our four guests today. Paul Helmke is with the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. He's a professor of practice and the head of the Civic Leaders Center, uh, the director of the Civic Leaders Center. Shauna Murphy is president and CEO of SMS Consulting. James Toole is an associate professor of political science at Indiana University, at Purdue University, Fort Wayne. And Betsy Gravy is an IU Media School professor who researches democracy and media and in informed citizenship. You can send us your questions um, on Twitter at Noon Edition. And you can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Really glad to have all of you with us. We, I think we have uh, lots of different areas of this, um, this historic week covered. And I want to start with Paul Helmke. And Paul, if you could talk now, I should say, Paul is a former, the former mayor of Fort Wayne, Republican mayor of Fort Wayne. And he also was a former Republican candidate for U S Senate. And he's been involved in Indiana and U uh, S politics for quite some time. Paul, can you put this in some sort of historical and political um, context for us? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still in shock. I've, I've never seen
2: or heard about anything, uh, Close to what happened on on Wednesday, um, you know, in in so many contexts, one is sort of a an attack on the Capitol. Obviously, on nine eleven, they were very concerned that that might have been where Flight ninety three was heading, and um, you know, we never know because of the heroic people on Flight ninety three during the War of eighteen twelve. The British uh, uh, did burn the, the, the Capitol building, but uh, except for that, and perhaps some of the threats uh, during the Civil War when the troops were close by. Uh, 's been net there's never been this kind of a direct attack on the capital there there have been some you know there been some Puerto, R- Puerto Rican nationalists did shoot uh, uh, some people in 1954 I think it was and and there's been a few other incidents but never this large scale of an attack on the Capitol since the British burned it but I, I look at it in terms of three things that still amaze me one is that there was this focused protest uh, coordinated planned protest set for January 6th the day that the uh, the Congress was supposed to meet and, and and follow its constitutional obligation to open the ele- electoral co- uh, votes. Uh, you know, we've we've had people protest uh, electoral counts before, but we've never had a coordinated uh, uh, protest set for that date. Uh, we've never had a losing candidate focus on that date. <clears throat> we've never brought people to the, the nation's capital. Uh, to try to uh, uh, deal with that protest and, I mean, deal with that event and, and interfere with that event. I've been uh, I've been in protests in D.C. before. I've been there, uh, uh, you know, over the last 50 years I've seen protests in D.C. Usually they're not scheduled when something crucial is happening in Congress. We've seen protests the day before the inauguration. We've seen protests like four years ago, the day after the inauguration, uh, but uh, we've never seen protests tied to a specific uh, constitutional function like this before. So, um, you know, that's one thing. Plus the fact that uh, really it was too late at this stage to protest the election. That that ended uh, on December 14th when the Electoral College met. So all of this is something that that really had gone beyond the constitutional canon in, in, in future protests. Second thing that was unique uh, uh, was the president's role. Uh, the, the speech, uh, you know, he encouraged people to, to come to D.C. on the 6th, uh, he said that uh, this was their chance to quote stop the steal and uh, I've, I've read a transcript of his speech from Wednesday morning and it, it it's amazing it's a uh, you know he basically uh, you know if we allow this group of people to illegally take over the country it's illegal when the votes are illegal when the way they got there is illegal when the state that are given false and fraudulent information uh, we fight we fight like hell if you don't fight like hell you're not going to have a country anymore. We are going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. We are going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness they need to take back our country. Um, and there, there's numerous other places where it just is basically saying this is fraudulent, this is wrong, and we need to uh, get in the face of these uh, uh, these weak Republicans, he calls them, and Mike Pence to to change things. And uh, you know, that's if, if that were any other person, that would clearly be considered incitement to violence. I I, I think I. I also looked at Eugene V. Debs' speech from June 1918, a four-time, five-time presidential candidate. In June 1918, uh, he gave a speech against World War I. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison for saying less incendiary things than President Trump said the other day. So uh, that's unique. Then the the, the last thing is the storming the Capitol um, and the lack of preparation for that. Uh, Again, I've, I've been in the Capitol building many times. You go through all sorts of security, um, I've seen protests there where there's all sorts of security uh, to um, to have people breaking in there, uh, you know, uh, killing a Capitol police officer, invading the speaker's office, sitting in the speaker's chair. Uh, you know, this th- this was a dangerous day for American democracy, and uh, it's it's going to take some time and uh, in in some effort uh, really to, to to clean up the mess that we we saw the other day.
1: I'm going to re- revise the order. I said I was going to go in uh, when I talked to you before the show, Bessie Gravy I want to ask you about social media and just the media's influence on all this, and how how the media um, contributed in some way.
3: Uh, I I think this is a, a very slow and long boil that um, you know erupted in a, a, a very visible rolling boil um, this week and. So, um, if if you allow me, I, I think I want to start by um, uh, trying to explain this with a social psych- psychological principle, um, and it's called the confirmation bias. This this is something that social psychologists have identified many many decades ago, and and it, what it basically means is that. We as human beings attend to information in a way where we look for things that confirm what we believe uh, and and we all have this to 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 some degree um, and so you com- combine that human tendency um, with uh, a social media environment where algorithms um, really um, put us in contact with like-minded people right so we create through social media algorithms these clusters of of people who think alike and uh, work each other up into a froth Um, also of course um, helped along by um, politicians uh, as we've already um, pointed out here Um, and then you add with that the um, prolific uh, dissemination of disinformation during this um, election season, and it wasn't just election information; it was COVID-related rel- disinformation as well, um, and the the rise of um, conspiracy um, communities um, that flourish on social social media because of everything I've I've described so far. Um, and these conspiracy communities um, that exist very clearly online uh, give people a sense of belonging, uh, uh, a, a sense of identity uh, in a time when most of us are relatively socially isolated uh, during COVID. Um, and that exacerbates this, this whole, um, yeah, slow boil that, um, that, that started. And you introduce into that the idea that, uh, yes, um, you know, government officials try and tell us that we should wear masks and, and try and stay home and stay safe. Um, and now we have something to be mad about. What strikes me is when, when I look at the interviews with people who were at the Capitol, who, who protested and assaulted the Capitol, what they say is that they, uh, the reason why they're doing this is their freedoms are being taken away. I mean, that, that is stunning to me. Um, because of its absolute um, uh, break with reality, in um, in any way. So um, I've given you a long uh, descriptive um, um, angle here on the on the media. If I if I wrap it up um, very briefly, it, it clearly social media is highly conducive to the formation and maintenance of conspiracy theory. Um, and it, um, uh, it locks people into uh, highly polarized um, echo chambers, where they hear the same thing, and they start to really believe what they hear in these um, um, uh, conspiracy um, uh, networks. Uh, so that is, that is in, 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 a, in a broad way, um, how I would add to what has already been said.
1: All right, Betsy, we'll get back to you and to Paul. Uh, I want to bring Shauna Murphy in here uh, for another aspect of this, and that is how the protesters, the so-called protesters or the rioters, were treated um, in comparison to, say, the Black Lives Matter protesters who were on the streets just months ago.
4: Um, I first uh, want to um, just put some uh, context in because I think it's – there's a danger in um pointing being able to point to what happened at the state at the um national capital as being some as an anomaly when you look at some of the things that happened across the country earlier in the summer just around the um request for people to wear masks, you saw similar things to occur and contextually, I think it's important before answering the question to remember that seventy four million plus people voted for the president. And we cannot pretend that some of those people are not members of the very force that is charged with protecting and serving. I mean, in addition to that, he was endorsed by the FOP and the International Union of um, Police Associations. And so we have baked in the racial bias, the racism that allowed for the militarized presence of police during the Black Lives Matter movements, compared to the um, decorative uh, policing that was happening over at the nation's capital. The only other thing that I would I want to point out around this is that, from a um, from my perspective as a black person in this country. The language that's being used in terms of this being an assault on American democracy is really interesting to me because from the history of black people in this country, what we witnessed was an assault on white American democracy because mob rule has been historically active and remains active and in some ways endorsed and um, perpetrated by the very police officers who are allegedly Positioned in our communities for, to protect and serve, and I will I qualify that last statement by just simply pointing out here in our state, in the city of Indianapolis, in fact, we have had more than 13 um, African American members of our community killed by our um, local police officers, and um, several of those were fleeing, but were still. Um, killed. So I, I think it's important that as we have the conversation and we look at the, um, visuals that we pay attention to the fact that for some reason, white America needs a visual representation of what African Americans have been saying all along in terms of how we have been over-policed and mistreated by, um, a state apparatus. And then to see that, that same level of, um, effort is not deployed really is more indicative of the racism that undergirds the way in which um, black and brown communities are policed.
1: All right. Thank you very much. And I want to go to James Toole next. And uh, James Toole is Associate Professor of Political Science at uh, Purdue University, Fort Wayne. And um, James Toole, the international views of what, what people are seeing you know what what do you um you know what do you make of the of what people from various countries are saying when they see what happened here on uh this earlier this week yeah well thanks Bob thanks for having me on and I think what we can i
5: think I'd begin by just saying that you know <laughs> there are, there there are basically two broad categories of reactions from world leaders one uh from our adversaries and strategic competitors is uh, our statements that show how much they seem to be enjoying what's happened and uh, taking advantage of what's happened. And the other group, of course, is from our friends and allies around the world. And let me just uh, give a brief selection of some of these comments. First, from adversaries and or strategic competitors. Uh, We have a quote from uh, from Iran, from President Hassan Rouhani, who who notes how fragile and, and vulnerable Western democracy is, this coming from the leader of a, of a highly authoritarian uh, political system. Uh, the chair of uh, the lower house of Russia's, uh, the, the chair of the foreign affairs committee of the lower house of Russia's parliament said the United States certainly cannot now impose electoral standards on other countries and claim to be the world's beacon of democracy. So taking a really direct shot there at our sense that we are a preeminent democracy that stands as a model for the rest of the world. Uh, So, too, from Venezuela, President Nicolas Maduro said the United States suffers from the same that it has generated in other countries with its politics or policies, rather, of aggression. Uh, From Turkey, we have the parliamentary speaker of Turkey saying we follow the events in the USA with concern and invite the parties to calmness. As Turkey, he says, we have always been in favor of the law and democracy and recommend it to everyone. And that's pretty rich, given Uh, Turkey's recent slide toward authoritarianism under President Erdogan. And finally, from China, among uh, adversaries and strategic competitors, we have there are a number of different things here, but the Global Times, which uh, some of our listeners may know as an English language and quite stridently nationalistic uh, government publication. Global Times uh, commented that Speaker Nancy Pelosi once referred to the Hong Kong riots as a beautiful sight to behold. It remains to be seen whether she will say the same about the recent developments on Capitol Hill. And there were various, apparently, comparisons in, the Chinese, in Chinese media and social media of the attacks on the Capitol to the uh, demonstrations in Hong Kong, which I think are offensive to anyone who cares about democracy and human rights, to compare this to the Hong Kong protests. I was in Hong Kong for part of those protests last year, and, and I think we all appreciate that those are highly democratic protests Um, on behalf of of a vibrant civil society against what is a clearly authoritarian regime in China and an increasingly authoritarian regime within Hong Kong. And I'll just say a few brief things about comments from our allies, which naturally were were quite supportive, but also very concerned. To me, the two most moving were from France and Germany. Uh, President Macron of France said the following, he underscored the long friendship that our countries have had dating back to our war of independence and the fact that we fought together on the side of democracy in two world wars. And he said, and I quote, today France stands strongly, fervently, and resolutely with the American people and with all people who want to choose their leaders, determine their own destinies and their lives through free and democratic elections. And we will not yield to the violence of a few individuals who want to challenge that. And from Germany, we have a really interesting quote from the uh, German ambassador to the United Kingdom, Andreas Michaelis, and he said, and I quote, after our catastrophic failure in the 20th century, that is Germans' failure, we Germans were taught by the U.S. to develop strong democratic institutions. We also learned that democracy is not just about institutions, it's about political culture too. All All democratic nations need to constantly defend it. And, you know, I could go on and on, as you might expect, these reactions from allies express a lot of concern, but also, you know, pretty consistent support in in U.S. uh, democratic political institutions. But they clearly also indicate that people are shaken by this. Again, pointing to that quote from Germany, and I'll finish up with that is that, again, uh, the ambassador says that democracy is not just about institutions, it's about political culture, too. And we might talk about this later. It depends how our conversation goes. But I think that uh, one of the uh, m- most deeply troubling things about this is how how the, these attacks have emanated from deep within uh, American uh, political culture. And I think that's the, that's really the fundamental thing that needs to be addressed, pro- probably even
1: more than uh the recent damage to our political institutions thank you to all four of you for sort of setting um a lot of different um ways that we can look at these issues these these really horrifying issues that occurred earlier this week if you out there have any questions or any comments you can send them to us on twitter at Noon edition, or you can send them to us news at indiana public org. Brock Turner, thanks for being patient. I wanna bring you on now uh, talking about the um, political tone and and just the politics of the situation and what's happened in our our sort of political arena. You've talked to and gotten statements from several Indiana um, representatives, sen- our senators, representatives, people who um, have opinions on this, you sort of, set that uh, up for us. You know, I know Mike Braun and Trey Hollingsworth had said they were going to basically protest the, the vote. And so what ultimately happened? What did they, what have you heard? from people?
6: Yeah, absolutely, Bob. And thanks for having me. And thanks everyone for, for joining us. Um, I, th- I think what's, what's said and what's not said are two is an important distinction to make. So you know, yes. Initially, Senator Mike Braun, Indiana's junior senator, came out and said that he would protest the vote um, to accept electors from multiple states, uh, primarily Arizona and Pennsylvania. That, um, that that vote did not end up happening. Um, he He signed on to the initial legislation. Um, and onto on to the initial bill, but um, but did not end up following through with that vote. It was a, it was a quick reversal after the um, after the insurrection at the Capitol and, and everything that happened um, in D.C. Senator Todd Young, though, was was a little more was sort of on the other camp of the Republican Party, which was that he was going to you know quote unquote follow the Constitution um, and and attempt to you know and, and accept all results. Um, so I, I think there's a there's a core distinction there between Indiana's Republican representatives, um, Greg Pence being another great example of that, where he um, voted to accept electors from Arizona, but then voted to um Reject electors from Pennsylvania, so I think there's there, there's really sort of two camps um, within the Republican Party, and then all Democrats um, probably unsurprisingly voted to accept the the results of the election as uh, as presented. But I, th- I think this kind of sets the stage for something that's that you know is perhaps really problematic, where you know one's own political ideology is um, you know questioning the, the integrity of the voting system, which is, by all accounts, very secure. And I'm interested to hear kind of what our panelists think about, you know, about this sort of recent development. Um, this, this, to me, seems like a pretty recent uh, phenomenon where, you know, a political ideology can throw into question, uh, by all accounts, uh, a reasonable and well-run election.
1: Paul Helmke, I, I know you have some thoughts on that.
2: The, uh, you know, it's, it's people always say that there's, uh, oftentimes people say there's or mistakes in elections. And uh, it's been something that particularly Republicans have, have been raising for the last uh, 20 years or so. But every time someone does the research, they find that it's it's very minimal. There are mistakes that are made in every election. Uh, there may be an incident of fraud or two i i i think the georgia situation is uh, really the best example here you know the georgia secretary of state and the georgia election commission went through every one of trump's charges and pointed out no there were only two dead people that they think voted uh, no there you know there was no funny business going on uh, underneath the tables that uh, that video that was publicized was doctored you know and they went through this time after time after time uh, but uh, you know, apparently people aren't out, aren't out there listening to it. So I, I, I think we have free and fair elections. One of the reasons is that our election system is so decentralized; it's very difficult uh, to change the results anywhere. But you know, in in the past, maybe you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, we we had elections that uh, you know uh, were were a lot more corrupt, even in Indiana. You know, rumors about Lake County uh, in the in the 50s and 60s uh, uh, were always. Uh, uh, you know around but uh, i think clearly in in the in the more modern era in the last 50 years our elections have been uh, secure and have have been safe and uh, and we need to accept that i've 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 been involved with um working a precinct appointing the election officials watching them count the votes these are people that do this year in and year out they're just trying to do a good job and they're trying to be honest about it and you know that, that that's a crucial thing the last point i just want to make is that when there have been charges of fraud in the past uh we've had candidates uh who realize that uh, the constitution the constitutional process and the future of the country is more important than uh, than trying to fight back uh, famously in 1960 uh, a lot of people encouraged richard nixon to contest the uh, loss to, to john f kennedy they said that mayor daily of chicago had helped steal the uh, illinois votes and that uh, if that had been reversed uh you know, Perhaps Nixon would win in the electoral college and Nixon uh, basically said he didn't want to put the country in jeopardy, that it, it wasn't worth doing that sort of thing. And uh, he presided over the uh, uh, joint meeting of the House and the Senate that declared John Kennedy the winner in that race. That's what we've always had in this country before. Um, now we seem to get politicians like President Trump who say th- those are people that were part of the surrender caucus that, uh, that Republicans give up too easily. Al Gore, uh, you know, lost by 537 votes. The Supreme Court stopped the recount because they said it had to be done by the time the Electoral College was done. But um, I, I think our elections are run fairly. Uh, there have been questions raised, but uh, uh, people need to learn how this really works. You you can't easily hijack an election.
4: Can I add also <laughs> that um, I don't know that we can have this conversation and not talk about racism. And not talk about the places that have been um, and not a position at first in the efforts to suppress votes across the country. Mm-hmm. And again, um, to put it in a very localized context, the um, number of early voting sites that were made available in Marion County compared to the early voting sites that were made available in um counties as a way of suppressing votes of black and brown people. Um, when we talk about fair um, elections, we have to also talk about the fair accessibility for those to vote, and that we got to the point where um, charges of the election being stolen. It was a culmination of a failed effort to suppress votes all across the country, and when that effort failed, the logical conclusion for those who are of the conspiracist mind mindset is that then, of course, there had to be um, fraudulent activity and the election hijack. But I really um, believe that we have to situate the conversation in the racism that was driving the challenges, especially when you get to the county level um, positioning of the arguments that were being made against certifying the vote.
1: Couple of things okay. I want to mention to, to follow up there, uh, Shauna Murphy. Just to, to... Um, address some of the things that you were saying earlier, our producer came up with some numbers. According to the Boston Globe, as of Thursday morning, 61 of the pro-Trump um, mob members had been arrested. 61 on June 1st, 326 people were arrested at a Black Lives Matter demonstration. Mm-hmm. So. It sort of shows the disparity of how the different uh groups have been and and there's not even any comparison between the black lives matter um protesters and the mob that stormed into the the capitol
4: building um, i'm really glad you said that because there are so many false equivalencies being drawn between what happened the other day and the movements that happened across the country and across the world regarding the black lives matter movement and um I would encourage the listeners as they look at what happened at the nation's capital to look at what's happening in their own communities, because it's much easier to point to a group of people that are at a distance than it is to look in your own backyards and look at the dis- disparities that are ever present, just in terms of the number of people who are sitting in local in city and county jails um, and the race of those people in those jails reflect the over-policing of black and brown skins that happen across this country every day.
2: This is Paul, and I, I Shauna makes great comments and in very uh, important comments. I, I, I think it's interesting too that uh, in the past, when uh, usually Democrats and, and 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 people of color have have talked about uh, suppression and the and the need to have better standards in terms of what IDs are allowed how much early voting should be allowed how many sites there should be Uh, whenever that's been raised at the national level the republicans in the past have said oh we we can't get involved in the national level that's that that's a local concern that's a state concern states decide their own rules but all of a sudden now they decided uh, apparently all the ones that uh, that were going to vote to throw these uh, uh, throw the electoral counts out that no we don't like the way the states did that we've got to set uh, national standards for these people so you you see a lot of duplicity in these arguments too
1: Betsy Graby, I wanted to come back to you about the echo chamber, because we're already seeing some people uh, who are trying to argue that these weren't Trump supporters that, Oh no, they, they had to be people from the far left Antifa, even though there are clear photos of people who are well known to have uh, been Trump supporters uh, there was a there were is a picture of, of Matthew Heimbach, an Indiana guy who uh, this station has done stories on and Indiana media has done stories on. He's he's a white nationalist, some would say a, a white supremacist, and he was very much in evidence out there. And a lot of these other people uh, were very much in evidence who are uh, racist or homophobic or um anti-Semitic with uh, the kind of, of uh, clothing they were wearing. Yet there are people that will seem to ignore, you know, the evidence and just say, Oh no, that, that, that couldn't have been Trump supporters. Can you just explain to me how that, how that happens?
3: Yeah, that, that is, you know, take it back to that confirmation bias that we have people Will seek information and turn to social media and other uh, media outlets to confirm what they want to believe. And now that there is clearly um, a strong reaction uh, um, against what happened at the Capitol, um, the conspiracy um, theories and the media pushing these, these uh, conspiracy theories, you're absolutely right, are already busy. Um, pointing the finger back uh, at the protesters and, yes, attributing um, their allegiance to uh, Antifa. Uh, I've I've watched uh, last night quite a bit of that. It is truly disturbing. And and even pointing to NPR and reporting on NPR and a timestamp on NPR report. You know, it's an updated ongoing report, but finding some conspiracy theory um, on that times um, stamp on the N- NPR site that somehow NPR orchestrated uh this this um, mob activity at the at the capital to um, put uh trump's supporters in a bad light so yeah be, be ready uh the full cycle of um, conspiracy and the warping of, of what actually occurred and twisting it into a, uh, a, a, a factless uh, alternate reality is is, is happening already. And, and the problem that we see in media research is once um, a lie has been launched through these tight networks of, um, of social media, it is almost impossible to reverse it. We can track uh, misinformation through tools that have been developed at Indiana University um, in the School of Informatics here. Um, And we can track also fact-checking to see how uh, fact-checking is disseminated through a, a, a social media network. And it's absolutely astonishing to see... Uh, how little of the fact-checking um, dissemination happens after a, a lie is launched into the system. It's really hard to reverse this information. Um, the the one thing I can say is that it will be absorbed and cling to and made part of worldviews of people who already um, have those views. We are, of course, concerned about um, younger people being drawn into those um, darker corners of the, the social web. And some of the studies we've done during the election campaign, we've seen actually, uh, and our study is one of the first to really point that out, that um, uh, people between 18 and 25 seem to be more vulnerable to believing that uh, false narratives and that's something we're digging into a little deeper we've got a massive data set that we're um you know really mining at the moment to understand human vulnerability to to disinformation but we've seen the first sign there that young people are quite vulnerable uh,
6: to disinformation that's terrifying. I think that's a great point, Betsy. Um, and, and I also kind of wanted to, to bring James in here as well, um, you know, to talk about, you know, the what to compare what we're seeing here in the United States in terms of of nationalist movements, um, you know, like we've seen from the far right. How does this compare to to other countries and, and disinformation? Certainly, you know, these movements tend to latch onto that. Um, into these false narratives that, that are spread throughout social media. But James, how does this compare to what we're seeing in other countries? Yeah, that's a really good question.
5: And, you know, I, I, um, I so strongly agree with what, what everyone else has, has said here. And to build on what Betsy said, I mean, I think we have a fundamental problem right now in our American democratic political culture. And I think among the many problems that exist in our political culture is, I think, one overriding one, which is that a significant minority of Americans right now simply are unwilling to accept the facts of the real world in which we live. Facts such as uh, the election results of 2020. And this isn't just a matter of one person's opinion against another person's opinion. It's simply a refusal to accept the factual reality of, of our lives. And this is a much tougher uh, problem to address than um, than most other problems of political culture, and I have no no solution to it. No one, I think, really has any clear solution to it. Though there are things we can do, but I would uh, very much second what what Betsy said. And in 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 reaction to your your question, Brock, um, you know, I think we're living in a time right now, especially in the last five years, uh, or maybe uh, ten years, in a broader sense. Of uh, of democratic rollback around the world, and of the spread of uh, of increasing authoritarianism uh, and national populism in countries around the world, we have very good and sad examples from places like Turkey, Hungary, Poland, the Philippines, uh, Brazil, uh, and there are many others. Um, and so, I think it's a, it's a time of real concern, and of course, the U.S has been known as as a leader of democracy around the world. Uh, Americans certainly have viewed us this way. There's been much skepticism of that uh, around the world. That skepticism is only going to increase. And so I think we face a lot of challenges and now we've revealed some fundamental weaknesses in our political culture, but also in our institutions. And I'll wrap up here by saying that I think our institutions have shown over the last week or maybe ever since uh, the election in November, I think our institutions have held fairly well. They've been pretty resilient in terms of uh in terms of pushing back against this attempt to undermine the the election results of November 2020. But we still have some very clear institutional breakdown here. uh Shauna was uh, you know illustrated this very nicely. um we have We have a lot of work to do in terms of policing, criminal justice and and other things. Uh, pertaining to black and brown people and and uh, racial inequality in this country, but we also have some work to do in shoring up our institutions when it comes to elections and uh, provisions within um, within our legal constitutional structure when it comes to um, to how presidents are elected.
4: Can I jump in um, absolutely as i as I listen to the conversation around false narratives, the believability of those narratives and confirmation biases and things of that nature. The um, structure of racism in this country is rooted in the false narrative of um, white American exceptionalism and the inadequacies of anyone else. And so when we, I just wanna make sure that when we come to these conversations and are having this conversation, which is very important that we give attention to the fact that what we saw occur over the summer was rooted in the false narrative of the dangerous black and brown people, the unruliness and the um, myth of violent, of the violent black and brown person measured against the false narrative of the um, calm, cool, collected white person who can go and do their protest and blah, blah, blah. And so therefore, in, there's no need for the level of policing that occurred during the summer. The false narrative and confirmation bias is always at play. And when we think in terms of institutions and how we um, strengthen those in in the space of voting and um, free and fair elections, we also need to pay attention to the questions that we bring to what is it that we really need to um, rev up? And then the last thing I'll say, as it goes back to policing and the over-policing of black and brown and poor people in this country, the training, the positioning of um, police officers in our communities are often rooted in the false narrative. of We are more prone to do X, Y, and Z. And so again, I just, um, as we think in terms of false narratives, Racism is a false narrative that has propagated the institutions that are now being that are now imploding in some ways.
6: I think you make a great point where you're talking about you know these issues that are really baked into the institutions that that uh, that, that we've come to to rely on, um, and and I think that's such an important point, Paul. I want to bring you in here just to kind of talk about you know in in terms of of these issues, you know, that, that we're maybe seeing manifest themselves, it sounds like that you, you felt like the institutions have sort of held up, but have the actions that we've seen over the course of this past week and, and a number of weeks, do you think that that calls into question the validity of the institutions that we've come to rely on that, you know, something as, as, you know, fundamental as, you know, free and fair elections? It's, uh, it, it, I think it's shown how fragile our systems are.
2: Uh, The, uh, you know, this easily could have gotten a lot worse. I mean, there's reports that some of the, uh, uh, some of the folks invading the Capitol wanted to capture Mike Pence and and hang him as a traitor, Uh, that uh, there were discussions before Wednesday of groups, uh, you know, should we shoot uh, ATF officers or just Capitol police officers. Um, you know it, it. You know there there are people in the found in the Capitol with AK-47s. Uh, if somebody had had a gun and started uh, using their semi-automatic, uh, and, and after they got into the House chambers and House members were still there, we would have really had a uh, significant catastrophe on on our hands. And I, I think this this is what happens when you start challenging. Uh, uh in a, when you you have unfounded challenges to our our system of elections when you ag- ignore the uh, widely accepted democratic norms that have held true for uh for you know for most of our history um you know it, it's it it can be scary yep it, it it was a dangerous day this easily could have uh, could have gone other ways and uh, and again we still have 12 days left till the inauguration uh, there's already discussion. You know, do we need a Twenty Fifth Amendment intervention? Do we need an impeachment? Um, you know, what are, what will the military do if they get a, a, a some sort of a strange order from from the president? Uh, will there be more pro- protests and attacks and uh, challenges at the inauguration? Uh, this this is still a dangerous time for us. We're we're not through this yet, and uh, and uh, there's a lot of issues out there. But I think we it, it shows the importance of paying attention to to what's happening realizing that words have consequences actions have consequences um, these false narratives have consequences uh, the racism that's so embedded in so much of our system that has consequences and uh, you know et- eternal vigilance is the price of liberty uh, they once uh, jefferson once said and we we need to be we need to be vigilant now
1: we have about ten minutes I might left just in the show. Point let, point let, point let me just point. let me let me mention Paul really quickly. If anybody out there has a question, you can send them to at noon edition or you can send it to news at indiana dot org. Go ahead, Paul.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say one 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 uh, quick response uh, when uh, I think Brock was talking about the politics. One of the things that I was impressed with the other day was uh, Todd Young. There was video shown of. Uh, him being uh, uh, challenged by some uh, presumably Hoosiers as he is going into the Senate office building, uh, you know, pushing him to uh, uh, to uh, uh, resist the uh, electoral counts. And he basically said, and he got very heated, you know, I follow the Constitution. I took an oath to follow the Constitution, took an oath uh, to God to follow the Constitution. <clears throat> and this, this is what the Constitution says. And I, I think that was one of Todd Young's uh, uh, finer moments, actually, and it was an interesting contrast with Senator Braun, who was at the same time being praised by uh, by President Trump in his uh, uh, early morning, you know, uh, morning rally. The other comment I want to make is that uh, just to show that we, we've had threats to our system before. Today is the 10-year anniversary of the attack, uh, uh, the attempted assassination of Gabby Giffords, uh, where she six people were killed: a federal judge, a, a Senate, a, a House staffer, um, you know, a nine-year-old girl we've had this strain of violence, not only racially motivated violence, but uh, politically motivated violence in our, in our country for a long time. And, uh, you know, after the Gabby Gifford shooting, nothing was done in Congress to try to deal with those issues. Um, It's going to be interesting to see after Wednesday, what, uh, what Congress does in the future to deal with the other issues that are coming up.
1: Paul, I want to follow up with a question for you and anybody else can, uh, can join in as well, if you'd like, but I, I, it seems like we've been on a slide here, um, you know, toward this um, lack of confidence in institutions. Perhaps that's how President Trump was elected in the first place. And in the last four years, he's done a lot to discourage confidence in institutions. So I guess I'm asking you to sort of frame that for us. Were we, you know, were we rapidly moving toward Toward this or slowly, methodically moving toward this, um, this lack of confidence in institutions and President Trump, Donald Trump just happened to be the guy who was there, who the anger of the voters decided to elect him. And then for the last four years, he's just added fuel to the fire or how responsible is he for you know, the lack of confidence in institutions?
2: I mean, th- this is something that's been building for some time, and I think it goes back at least to the the, the mid 1960s uh, with uh, LBJ in Vietnam. Uh, uh, people started, uh, you know, the anti-war protests then. But it was, you know, can we believe what the president's saying when uh, with the Gulf of Tonk resolution, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, and the way that they're handling the the protesters? And I I used to collect political buttons. I've got a Nixon button that says "Stop the Credibility Gap." Uh, you know, uh, elect a Nixon and Agnew, but of course that just continued the credibility gap and uh, and the the lack of uh, faith in in the president and in in Congress. And uh, over the last 50 years, we've had both political parties basically running against government. Uh, You know, you see every candidate uh, almost saying, you know, they're all corrupt there. It's a swamp there. They're all rotten. You know, elect me and I'll make the change. And then, of course, things don't change because it's really not as bad as they say it is. And they can't make the change alone. And so people you know, people hear more and more of how bad this system is. They they hear the negative ads. Uh, basically, we don't have anyone defending government or politics or taxes or our institutions anymore. And uh, people bought into those arguments. And uh, you know, I think re- things really started getting a lot worse than 25 years ago with um, 1994 election and the Gingrich Revolution, where it was you know the, we'll impeach Clinton, we'll oppose everything Clinton's doing, we'll investigate everything that's going on, and. You know, then you had the Iraq War uh, under questionable circumstances with George W. Bush. Uh, you know, it, it's just been building and building. I, I point out to people, my grandfather was involved in politics in Indiana for his entire life. He never saw an election where the popular vote and the electoral vote split. And already my students have seen two of that in their lifetimes. So uh, the, the country's polarizing. People have less faith in institutions. Uh, they don't believe politicians anymore. And uh, we're paying the consequences of it now.
1: Rock, I think you uh, had talked to the folks in in uh, Todd Young's camp.
6: Yeah, and I think you know, I think what we're what we're beginning to see is, uh, you know, a, an enablement of you know, I, I think something that Paul did a great job of mentioning is, is kind of painting a picture of the backdrop. But I think what we what's made the Trump administration different is that we've seen an, an enablement from establishment Republicans to sort of. You know, allow these you know false statements to go unchecked and these and these overall threats, um, and, and I think that's something that that maybe is new that we haven't seen before. Um, and and I'm and I'm curious to 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 bring in the others here with about two minutes left. Um, you know, Shauna, Betsy, what do you what do you think about you know the the new mov- movement that we've seen, and and you know, do you think anything will change as we begin to see you know an enablement of, of these types of, of behaviors and, and maybe n- even norms that that are accepted
3: I, I can speak to to the media front of this and um, you know the, there's very low confidence in in government but if you look at the credibility and trustworthiness of media it's also at uh, record lows and um, that has been falling um, in a very slow way ebb and flow really over over decades but it's it 's really hitting uh, a low point right now and when you 've had a president for four years telling the people uh that the media are their enemy um then yeah don 't be don't be surprised that um, that that uh, they don't have any faith in in media and you know if if we do believe that um the lifeblood of a, de- a democracy um, is is uh, information in, with in, information that has integrity. Uh, then, then, this is a very serious problem. And, and and if people do not believe reliable news outlets um, to and 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 go to them for information, uh, they will turn to the social web. And they will uh, recede back into those um, uh, small, uh, polarized um, uh, enclaves um, and believe conspiracy um, theories. So uh, I, I'm, I don't have solutions for how to overcome the credibility of um, democratic institutions, but I think we are at a crisis level.
1: We're almost out of time. I want to give uh, James Toole and Shauna just, you know, 10 or 15 seconds if you got one one final comment that you want to make.
4: Um, I've got uh, my final comment is that time will tell. If nothing else, the hope is that people understand that what happens nationally emanates from local politics. We have one, two, three, five Indiana Congress people vote to um, in objection to the certification of our um, electoral college. Those people need to be voted out. If we can mobilize on a local level, we can change what happens on the national landscape.
1: Okay, thank you Thank you for that. James Stuhl, just 10 seconds, 15 seconds.
5: Yeah, sure. I think the
1: big question here
5: is, you know, will this be a wake-up call to Americans? And I'm worried that it won't be enough of a wake-up call, given the damage we've talked about to our political culture and the longstanding erosion of trust in our institutions that I think all of us have talked about today.
1: All right. Thank you very much. Been a great program. Thanks to Paul Helmke for uh, all of his views, Shauna Murphy for her her uh, positions today, James Toole and Betsy Graby uh, for our my co-host, Brock Turner, for producer Bento Boutier, and for engineer John Bailey on Bob Zaltzberg.
0: Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at wfiu.org noon edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.